Church family, as we come to a special passage in the Bible that speaks of a table, I wanted you to look at one. I want you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Exodus. And when you find the book of Exodus, I'd like for you to find the 12th chapter and the 43rd verse. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 43, down through verse 51. For those of you who are guests, and I've met several of you this morning, we're in a sermon series through the book of Exodus called Get Out. I did not name this series. Uh, Pharaoh from ancient Egypt did. In fact, when we began the messages through the book of Exodus, we focused on Moses and then the plagues, and we come to this new series of the actual leaving of Egypt by the Hebrews known as the Exodus, which is why the book carries that name. And the last thing Pharaoh says to Moses, having his resistance broken by the tenth plague of the death angel, taking from every home in Egypt the firstborn, he says these words in chapter 12, verse 31, up, go out from among my people. Modern day language might be translated this way, Moses you and your people get out. And they did. And they left. And we began that journey last week. And we continued today by revisiting something that took place immediately before the 10th plague. And that, of course, was the institution of what is still revered by our Jewish neighbors and celebrated, and will be at the end of the month of April this year, known as the Passover. But the Passover is not just significant to our Jewish neighbors. The Passover is significant to Christians, and I'm going to show you why. Have you ever recognized the power of inclusion? I mean, we all want to go somewhere where we're welcome. For example, today. There's no cover charge to get in the room. Don't think I hadn't thought about it. But there's no cover charge to get in the room. In fact, our doors are open. Free admission, and it is by design. In fact, we could feel compelled by God to say to our entire community, any person who wants to come and listen and learn and grow, and if they are a Christ follower, worship. They are welcome in our worship services. We only have one rule, and that is that people come in and act in an orderly way so as not to distract from the worship, and we've never had a struggle with that. Our doors are open. Even more so are our children and our student doors. We love for any child in our community from any home to come and be a part of our various ministries. And when we have retreats and vacation Bible schools and outreach events like truck or treat or all kinds of games and fun during the summer, we willingly advertise to the whole community. In fact, most churches that are concerned about growing spend time thinking about how warm and welcoming they are because it can be an intimidating thing to go into a place that's strange. We all know those moments in our childhood where we were shoved out the door of our mother's car and we had to walk into a new school or perhaps a doctor's office as a teenager by ourselves and we were nervous and someone made us feel welcome. 
Who doesn't love inclusion or to be inclusive of everyone? But exclusion is a good thing too. In fact, in our day and time that loves to water down standards and to erase differences, can I just tell you, it's a good thing to exclude people in life? You say, well, what, what do you mean? Think about the room you come into this world in, the labor and delivery room. Ladies, that's an exclusive room. Not everybody's invited into that room, are they? You may have had a passionate mother-in-law that wanted to be in there, and you said, no, just me and your son, we're going to get this done. And the son had absolutely nothing to offer the entire ordeal. But you did. That's a private room. It's a private room. I, I remember once uh, Laura was in labor and delivery, which is pretty common. And uh, we were on the second floor of Spartanburg Regional Hospital. The second floor is obviously the second floor for a reason. And yet there was a maintenance man working on the top of the cover of the sidewalk where you entered the building. You know, where you enter Spartanburg Regional, right beside that sign that says no smoking, which is right beside that person who's smoking. And so, and so a maintenance man walked by the window, and Laurel's looking between her knees at the window, and she said, did you see that guy just go by? Now, first of all, it was a one-sided tent. You can't see in, you can see out. But she didn't realize it was a maintenance man going by quickly who would not be by, and I didn't want to tell her that. I said, yeah, honey, that's the sidewalk. What? <laughs> Turn the bed around. So, Baby, I'm not allowed to move the equipment. That's not part of it. They probably charged me for that anyway. That's a private room. That's not the only invitation-only room. I mean, when life fast-forwards, think about the next scenario. While you love everybody, you can't invite everybody to your wedding. There'll always be a few people show up, and you're like, did we give them an invitation? But most of all, you spend time with an invitation. Why? Because you want the dinner to be nice. You want the refreshments to be uh, appropriate. No one wants to run out of food or drink at a wedding. The first miracle of Jesus is where somebody miscalculated the invitation list or how much people would drink. They ran out of wine at the banquet. And so there is an invitation list, and it is invitation only. You know, they only invite certain students to order a gown. You only get a gown when you graduate. And there's only a few who graduate college and still only a few like this young lady who graduate from the greatest university in all the earth. Everybody can apply to go to a school, but only a few are invited to graduate because it's invitation only. And then when you get that first job, by default, you're in that interview and they offer you the position and you shake their hand and you sign the employment contract. By default, that means somebody didn't get the job. It's an invitation only. When you have an intimate dinner party with friends, there are certainly many people you don't invite because by default, you want to invite only a few. It's invitation only. And then when life is tough and you sit with a pastor or a counselor or a family member dealing with something hurtful in your life, that is confidential. That is not for the world to be included in. It's invitation only. And then at the end of the life, perhaps in a hospice room, a hospital room, or a bedside in someone's home, when someone is dying, who's there? Not every acquaintance, not every co-worker, not every church member. 
It is friends and family who are close. The family will reach out to people who the loved one who is preparing to pass away wants to see. But it is an invitation-only room. What's my point? It's rather simple. And I realize it's elementary, but it's often overlooked. Inclusion is a blessing at times, but so is exclusion. There are times when you belong somewhere only because you were invited. You just celebrated the mercy of God. Did you know to know him is an invitation-only relationship? What did Jesus say in the book of John, chapter 6, verse 44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's also a beautiful Trinitarian verse. The Father issues the invitation, the Spirit draws, and the Son saves. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Your belonging to Christ is because the gospel invited you to respond, and you reciprocated that invitation by responding in faith and repentance. See, this is what's happening in the book of Exodus. It is an ancient story that is true of a group of people who were nomads, ended up servants, became slaves, and then God liberated. And those are the facts, and we need to recognize that. But if we just leave it at the level of, yeah, it's a really cool story. I enjoy reading it in the Bible. Then we miss what God is doing because God is not just liberating a people geographically. He's not just liberating a people economically. He's not just liberating a people socially. He's keeping a promise to build a people spiritually. Now, the book of Exodus is the second book in the Bible. The first, of course, is the book of Genesis. Just as Exodus stands for leaving, that's exactly what the verb is, a exit, a leave. Genesis is a word that means beginning. In other words, if someone has a, an event or an idea, you say, what was the genesis of that idea? What you're saying is, how did that begin? What started it off? And the book of Genesis is the beginning of God forming a people. And God formed a people by keeping a promise he made at the fall when he issued the curse of sin. And he says, I will raise up someone who will crush the head of the serpent. We fast forward to Genesis 17, and God chose Abram. He changed his name to Abraham, but this is what the 17th chapter and the 10th verse says in the book of Genesis. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So when Abraham is entered into a covenant with God, God said, I'm going to build from you a nation but in order to do that, it, of course, requires population. Population requires procreation. And at the point of procreation, at the union of a man and a woman, sexually, emotionally, and spiritually, I'm going to mark you and set you aside. And this became a sign for the people of God. But the people of God in Genesis end up nomads starving to get death in Exodus. And Joseph, 
is raised up to save their lives. Fast forward 14 to 15 generations and we come to this nation who's now beginning to experience liberation. And no sooner, no sooner have they begun leaving Egypt that God re-reminded them of what they must always do to commemorate the breaking of the back of Pharaoh's resistance and the liberation of the people, which involved the shedding of the blood of a lamb so that death would pass over and mercy would come. And this is why when we see the Exodus beginning to unfold in chapter 12, no sooner have we been told of their route in verses 40 down through verse 42 do we get to the institution of the Passover. Read with me in this sermon, I'll simply entitle Invitation Only, verses 43 through 51. And as you're reading it silently, pay attention to the language of covenant, of inclusion, of exclusion, and of course of circumcision. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover... To the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among the people. And then Moses records their response. All the people of Israel did, just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Invitation only. When we fast forward to the New Testament, Peter picks up on this language. Peter, in talking to the church, says, you're a group of people who were chosen. You did not choose God. God chose you. And this is why he uses words like nation and priests in 1 Peter chapter 2. I've put it on the screen for brevity. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's covenant language. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. Now notice Peter's language. Once you were not a people. Peter is grabbing the Old Testament story of how this ragtag group of nomads were slaves and he's dropping it on New Testament Christians from all backgrounds, from all ethnicities, from all ancient tongues and he's saying, you were like them. You were a hodgepodge of lostness spread out among pagan belief systems. But now God has made you a people. You received mercy. You had not, but now you have received mercy. Mercy, And so this pattern happens from Genesis to Exodus, and it happens from the Gospels into the formation of the church. So that's why the Passover table and the table of the Lord's Supper is a beautiful representation of the Old Covenant in the Old Testament and the New Covenant in the New Testament. 
It's why Christians have a table too. Because the Christ of our Christianity took from the setting of the literal Passover and bridged the old with the new. It was on the evening of Passover that Jesus from the Passover table given to him by the law of his people, of course, as God he inspired, but as a Jewish man born of Mary, raised by Joseph, he observed because he kept the law in perfection, knew full well that the Passover would become the foundation for the celebration of the new covenant. So when you have an invitation-only event, there's some really simple questions that you have to ask and answer. The one that's most obvious is, well, who gets to come? My son, Red, is turning eight. It took me a minute. It's kind of like when I pulled into the Walgreens and they go, do you have a birth date on him? I'm like, yeah. I am absolutely sure he has a birth date. Hold on. But we were having a conversation about what he wanted for his birthday. I'm not a big birthday party guy. To me, it's a great way to wreck a day. I mean, I know people that do a huge birthday celebration every year for some snotty-nosed kids. I'm like, you ain't the king of England. I mean, what are you, what are you doing here, you know? And so, and so, I'm not a big birthday party guy. I don't attend birthday parties. It's in Opinions chapter 4, verse 6. Laurel can go and take our kids if he wants, but I don't do that. Um, but... But, but, uh, but he were ta was talking about what he wanted to do. And depending on the cost of what he wants to do, the invitation list gets big or small. You know what I'm talking about, Mom? Dad, gets big or small. You, you want to you go to Top Golf? We can't take 40 kids, right? Right. You want to have a bonfire and roast weenies in the backyard? Sure, I don't care who you invite. So, so we're making an invitation list at the kitchen counter. Who do you want to celebrate your birthday with? And we do this all the time. Who? Well, the who's in this passage tell us a lot. First, who must celebrate the Passover? Now, now the Passover is not new to us if you've been in this study. In fact, the Passover is instituted one page backwards at the beginning of chapter 12. If you remember very clearly that we dealt with it in one of the last sermons called uh, the Plagued by Pride, that the Passover was not just a ceremony to remember, it was an act of extending faith in God's grace by choosing a lamb without blemish, sacrificing the lamb, cooking it and preparing it in such a way that God demanded, taking the blood, spreading it on the doorpost, and God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now, any New Testament Christian knows that's a beautiful foreshadowing of what Christ does for us, which is why as believers, it catches people off guard, we sing about his blood. What can wash away my sin? Not my good works, not my deeds, not my church membership, not my tithe, not my mission trips, nothing but the blood of Jesus, the precious blood of Jesus. That which flows from Emmanuel's Veins. Emmanuel, of course, is the name that it, Jesus is called in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. It means in Hebrew, God with 
us. And so we celebrate the blood of Christ and the Passover was the precursor and foreshadowing of that blood that would be shed for us. So they had heard this language before and no sooner had they begun the exodus that Moses says, now listen, that meal, that meal is not to be observed in your memory. You are to celebrate that annually commemorating the day, really the night, where you gathered in your homes and under the faith of your promise in God's promise, you trusted God's mercy. You shed the blood of the Lamb representing the wages of sin being death and the grace of God being that he passes over you. And so it's not something you choose to do. If you are in the covenant, you must do it. Look at verse 47. We see that language. He says, all the congregation shall keep it. So there's sins of commission, meaning to do it the wrong way, to doing it irreverently, uh, to doing it though you're not a part of the covenant. But there's also the sin of omission. Fast forward. This is why it's healthy for New Testament churches to consistently take the Lord's Supper. It is a command for us, not a command that we do in order to earn the love of God. It is a command we do to retell the story and to remind ourselves. And so every person in the covenant, every Hebrew must participate in the Passover. But it's not just for those born Hebrews. The second who is not who must, but who can take it. Look what the scripture says beginning in verse 44. But every slave that is brought for money, bought for money, may eat of it after you have circumcised him. Look at verse 48, drop down three verses. If a stranger shall sojourn with you, those are two different people. One is a slave, I'll talk about that in a minute. One is a stranger who's visiting with you, who's doing life with you, an alien, someone who has immigrated into your midst. Moses says, if they receive your religion, if they accept your God as the one true living God, if they by faith begin to follow Yahweh, then they are welcomed at the table. See, this is not about race. It's about grace. Any person from any background can come to the table of God's grace by faith. And this is why he lays down the stipulation. Look at the second phrase beginning in verse 48. If a stranger shall sojourn with you, it's hard to say shall sojourn fast. I keep wanting to say shall sojourn. If a stranger shall, you get up and try it sometime. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised then. So there is the stipulation. It has nothing to do with you being racially a Jew, a Hebrew. And now we get the wonderful opportunity on a beautiful, brisk Sunday morning to talk about the heartwarming circumcision in the Bible. What do we do with this? Well, first of all, a couple of things about the act of circumcision. Number one, the Jews were not the only people in antiquity to practice circumcision. But best scholars can tell, they are the only people to circumcise baby boys. 
Most scholars believe, and I think there's a strong argument, that one of the fundamental messages from God to his people is, do not put your faith in the flesh. Now, when we talk about the flesh, a lot of times people who are foreign to the teachings of the Bible think that Christians hate the body, uh, that, that we hate the body. Uh, that we try to suppress sexuality, uh, that we're ashamed of the body. It's actually just the opposite. In fact, we are appreciative of the body and praise God for our bodies and see our bodies as instruments of the Lord. Uh, uh, the Bible celebrates uh, the masculinity and the strength of the male body, the beauty and the form, the figure of the female body. The Bible celebrates human sexuality. I often remind people when I teach on this, God created sex, not the porn industry, uh, not the ideology that rejects God and wants to treat us like highly evolved animals who act accordingly. It was, it was God's design. He's the one that makes us sexually attracted. He's the one who gave us sexual pleasure. He's the one that blesses our sexual intimacy with the gift of life. And so all those things are part of God. Now, sin has corrupted all those things, and we know that sexual sin hits different and it hits deep because God designed it so that our sexuality is deeply interwoven with our spirituality in our emotional state. This is why sexual sin hurts and damages and scars in a way that other sins do not. Now, it's certainly not insurmountable, and the grace of God can cover it, and I don't know that I've ever preached to an individual or a crowd that knows nothing of sexual sin. Just like we sin in every other way, every person in their life is going to come up at a time where they struggle with sexual sin in some form or shape. And I, I would just say that to you. If you find yourself in a deep battle with your flesh right now, I'm actually really glad you're here. I have great news. The blood of Christ can cover your struggles and your sin. You can be totally forgiven, and the power of Christ with the discipline of walking with him can give you the renewal of your heart and the renewal of your mind, and you don't have to live the way that perhaps you've been living. However, when God does, through the apostles and the prophets, take aim at the sinful nature of us, often the term flesh is used, sins of the flesh, struggling in the flesh. You know, we'll tongue-in-cheek say, whoo, I don't want to get in the flesh in this situation. What does that mean? Doesn't mean I want to get more in my body or less in my body. It means I can operate under the influence of the Holy Spirit, or I can listen to my own sinful desires and operate. The world outside has tried to depict this struggle with the cartoon caricature of the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other giving mixed messages. In some way, there's some biblical grounds to that in that once we come to know the Lord, the Holy Spirit lives in us and he's moving to pull us, push us, prod us, conform us into being more like the Lord Jesus. And so we know there's a spiritual battle taking place. Now, the good news for a Christian, this is just good theology, the good news for a Christian is that the results of the battle are already recorded in heaven. That, that when we come to faith in Christ, our sin no longer condemns us and is totally forgiven by God, but it does not disappear. And so, the walking out of our faith it's that spiritual battle, and it's often been said by many people, I did not coin this, inside of a battle or a fight, whichever dog gets fed normally wins. 
if you feed the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the community of God, and the accountability of the saints, and you're dwelling on the things of God, you grow in your strength to resist your flesh. But if you feed your flesh porn, if you feed your flesh gossip, if you feed your flesh envy, if you feed your flesh illicit relationships, if you feed your flesh materialism, if you dwell on everything you want and what you don't have, if you're constantly comparing yourselves to others, if, if you are complacent or apathetic in your walk, if you feed your flesh, then when you find yourself in a spiritual battle, you won't have a great deal of endurance. This is why Paul tells Christians, get up every day and put on the full armor of God, a soul does not put on the armor of God to go on vacation or as my daughter says who loves to watch Bluey holiday <laughs> a soldier puts on the armor when he's going to battle and of course Paul tells us make war make war with your sin well all of that has a foundation in circumcision it is the cutting away of flesh to say, I am not a people who will advertise my coming of age and sexuality as a young man, when often ancient culture celebrated circumcision, the coming out of someone's sexuality. But as a baby, this child will be marked by God at the point in which, upon his adulthood and becoming a husband, his body is joined with his wife and life comes. Because what was the covenant promise? The covenant promise was population growth was that they would be fruitful. And where'd that come from? All the way back to the garden. What'd God say to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. And this is why the covenant in Genesis 17 says this. Now, let me get real quickly to the spiritual part. As with the table, so much of what is done physically, whether a child be physically circumcised as a Jew in the covenant, which is no longer required, by the way, and I'm going to show you why, or a Jewish person, the night of Passover, physically take the unleavened bread, physically eat the lamb whose blood was shed. Those physical activities have spiritual power in what they represent. This is why before Jesus, even Jeremiah recognized you can go through the motions of Passover, of circumcision, and not be right with God. Jeremiah 4.4, 4, circumcise yourself to the Lord. Now, what's Jeremiah talking about? Remove the foreskin of your hearts. See, he's taken the literal act and said, it was always to represent a spiritual commitment. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Now, let me tell you how important this is. All of the early Christians were Jews. Everybody saved on Pentecost was Jewish. There were others from around the world saved, but the vast majority of the early church were Jewish. All my heroes in the Bible are Jewish. Every New Testament book was written by a Jew except for two, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, who were written by Luke, who was not a Jew. So all of these men and women would have been deeply entrenched by the Passover. And what would have been the requirement for Passover? Circumcision. 
What's the greater meaning? That you be in the covenant. How are you in the covenant? By faith. You say, Yahweh is the one true living God, and there is none like him. None of the gods of the Assyrians, none of the gods of the Philistines, none of the gods of the Canaanites or the Egyptians. There is only one true living God. This is the bedrock of Old Testament faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There are no other gods before him. Ten commandments. You shall have no other gods. And he's such a God, don't even try to make a graven image of him. Do not take his name in vain. This is how much of a God he is. This is the prerequisite to get into the covenant, to be a part of the people of God. And the activity to show your covenant commitment is that you obey his demands, and his demands are you circumcise your sons to show that I marked my people at the point where life comes from the union of a man and a woman. But then Gentiles started getting saved. And guess, not to be too graphic, guess what Gentiles were not? Circumcised. So some people in the New Testament said, ho, 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 we believe in Jesus. But if you want Jesus, you got to be circumcised. And Paul went off. In fact, he wrote his angriest letter. It's called the letter of Galatians. Now, this is Paul who was circumcised. This is Paul who circumcised Timothy once they were adults so that Timothy could minister to the Jews. That's an intimate mentoring relationship I will never emulate. <laughs> Every guy in our school of ministry just relaxed a little bit. Whew, that's a, I forgot that. So here's the deal. Paul understood the significance of circumcision, but only in as much as it, like water baptism— like the Passover, like the Lord's Supper, was an outward act of inward commitment, which is why in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. When you study Galatians in the original language, there's a point there where Paul says, tell them to go emasculate themselves. I don't even want to translate that to you literally. But Paul is basically saying, if they're running around telling people to cut on their bodies to prove that Christ saved them, they have missed the gospel. Now, how do we apply this? God cares who comes to his table, but he cares at the level of faith. Often, faith is shown by our outward commitments. It's like meeting someone who says, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm scared to be baptized. The first thing we do is give grace. Hey, I understand. It's a big room. You can be nervous. It's hard to get in front of people. Some people hate water. I have baptized people who trembled in fear because they don't even get their head wet in the shower. They hate water. Once I baptized a man by sprinkling. That may shock some of you who are Baptists like me. He was saved late in life, had a special medical condition, and because of the tubes in his chest, he could not be immersed in water. So me, him, and some other believers met at my stylist shop. She got a chair to prop way back. I baptized that joker right in the salon. <laughs> Absolutely. You know why? Because he wanted to. And I didn't even have to tip her. He wanted to. He wanted to declare his faith. And we videoed it and shared it with his friends and families, and we wanted to make it known. So my problem 
with someone pushing back from Passover in the Old Testament, the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, is that why would I not want to act outwardly what God has done inwardly? And that leads to that final, who cannot? Very clearly, he says, there shall be no one who takes it who's not been circumcised. The scripture says it this way in verse 43. This is a statute for the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. And even your slaves. And some people say, well, why would the Hebrews have slaves if they were just slaves? Well, we're going to learn about that in a few weeks. But slavery under the Hebrew law was much different than Egyptian law. In fact, you know what the Bible says about the Hebrews and their slaves? When you buy a Hebrew slave, you shall serve, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. So this is really indentured servanthood. But what Paul or what Moses is doing is covering everybody. And then once you get past the who, then, then how do you do it? Honey, what are we supposed to wear to this wedding? Is it formal or informal? I've been invited to this banquet. What's the dress? Often, if you do it appropriately, you'll supply hints as to what's expected, the proper attire. You behave differently at the receiving of friends awake than you do a football game. Football game behavior would be inappropriate in a funeral home. If you go into a funeral home or go to a football game and act as though you're at a funeral home, no one wants you to go with them again. Our context determines our behavior. Look what happens in verse 46. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Real quick. It's got to be eaten in community. This is not an individual thing. Once I had a college student with a pure heart said, can I be baptized in private? I said, no. Baptism is not a private act. You can pray in private. You can confess your sin in private. There's a lot you do with the Lord in private. But baptism is a public act that you are to do in the presence of other believers. It's also not only done in community in one house. That's not one house for hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions of people. It's basically the house that represents that household. You also do it in conformity. You do it inside the house. Why inside and not outside? Why was the Passover taken inside? Because it was in the homes where salvation was. You had to be in the home that the lamb's blood was covering you don't take any of the flesh outside. That's what the passage said. There's a reverence there. And you don't break any bones of the lamb. Now, scholars scratch their head at this, but thankfully, John tells us this was yet again this prophetic foreknowledge. Remember what the Bible says in John 19? Right when the soldiers were ready to end their day of crucifixion, since it was the day of preparation, by the way, preparation for the Passover, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. To break the legs of someone who is being crucified expedites asphyxiation, asphyxiation. They suffocate because they can't push off the nail to expand their lungs. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other one who had been crucified with him. Remember, one thief was there and went to paradise with him that day because of his faith in Christ. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. 
He who saw it has borne witness. John said, I'll stand in there. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. John referred to himself in the third person out of reverence for Christ, that you also may believe. Now, notice what John writes later on in the Scriptures about this. He talks about how no bone will be broken. So the idea is that his bones were not broken because it was him who was breaking the curse of sin, death, hell, and the grave. And then you lead to the why. Why'd they do it? Well, look at verse 50 and we'll close. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. They took the Passover because it was the meal that said, God saved our lives. Listen to me now. You can close your Bibles. Listen to me. All of you, for your entire church life, which for some of you has been all your life, like me, I was born and raised in church. Some of you are new to church. You get us excited. We want more people who are new to church to be here. All of you have always heard, well, for us, we come to the Lord's table to commemorate his death. That's true. But don't you dare fail to personalize it. According to the Passover, which Jesus took and instituted the Lord's Supper, every time you eat and drink, this is what you're saying. I'm remembering the one who saved my life. He saved my life. I would have no hope and die eternally in my sin, in never-ending pain and sorrow, had he not invited me to his table. This is why Jesus said at Passover these words. Look at them. I'll put them on the screen. And they went and found, just as he had told them, and prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then, of course, the scripture goes on to tell us that they, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then so as to eat the bread and drink the cup. Now, listen to Paul's words. They're rather sobering. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. If you come to the table and it means nothing to you but the fact that church had the Lord's Supper and I'm going to take it because I don't want anybody to think I'm not in, you drink and eat judgment on yourself. And in the Corinthian church, Paul says, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This is why any Christian church worth its salt always fences the table. We don't fence the table to keep people out. We fence the table to keep the meaning in, and we say to people, if your child has not yet made a decision, if you're here and you've not yet chosen, trusted Christ, we're so glad you're here. Remember the inclusion discussion? You're welcome here. But you're not welcome at the table until you welcome the Lord of the table into your life. 
you see, the gospel is invitation only. <laughs> the table is invitation only. But anyone who repents and believes is invited. It's invitation only. But the invitation is for anyone who would repent and believe. So there are three of you this morning. As you take your cup and prepare, some of you like me are certainly not perfect. But you know, Pastor, I'm in. I'm faithful. I've been baptized. I've trusted Christ alone. I'm ready to take this Lord's Supper. Others of you may say, Pastor, I'm a Christian. But you know, I, I've got some stuff in my life that I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to set this one out. And I'm going to deal with some stuff in my life in repentance, not to earn the love of God, but to respond to his conviction in my life. And then at a later date, when we gather again, I'm going to take the Lord's table. Others of you may say, hey, I've not trusted Christ. Friend, there's nothing that would bring us more joy than for you to trust Christ. But if you haven't, then we want you to watch the believers around you participate in this table. Paul said it this way to the Corinthian believers, For I delivered unto you what I received on the evening of supper. The Lord prayed and he took bread. And he said, This bread is my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, do so in remembrance of me. The scripture says, After supper he took the cup, and in the same way he blessed it, And he said, this is a cup of my blood, the blood of a new covenant given for you. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. As we think about ways to respond to this, rushing out of this room is not okay. Taking a moment to worship him is. If you have questions about your faith, our prayer room is open. If you know where you stand, you'll want to take the remaining three to four minutes of this service and worship him because he's invited you to the table.